My name is Skip Ryan. I'm the uh, Chancellor uh, at Redeemer Seminary and also a, a professor in practical theology there. And um, so uh, I have the fun of introducing uh, Tim uh, to you tonight. But before I do that, we're going to take advantage of the fact that you're here and uh, that uh, Redeemer is uh, bringing this to you tonight to just tell you a couple things about our, our uh, seminary. Uh, it has grown 100% in the last two years. And that's because of the kind of uh, students and the kind of leadership that, um, that the Lord seems to have uh, brought us. Our goal is to multiply ministers of the gospel and worker, workers for the kingdom of God, to multiply them at a greater and greater rate to go into places where the gospel is needed in the United States and overseas. Um, the statistics of how many ministers or kingdom workers there are per population segment, particularly in our major cities, is astoundingly low. We need people who are equipped and trained to do this. Our seminary is really two years old, but in another way, it's 82 years old. We were the daughter of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, who founded us uh, about 13 years ago. And just two years ago, we became independent. We changed our name. Um, we uh, have started out in some new and exciting uh, directions. So we have something old and something new. Uh, the something old is a great tradition. The Westminster tradition in theological education stands for a kind of biblical orthodoxy that is um, really made a huge difference in the churches of the world. Um, it is sound, it is strong, it is deep to the word of God, and it is wide to the world. But we're something new as well. And the new things that I think, you know, people say, why another seminary? What's unique about uh, or special about Redeemer? Now, let me just tell you this. Our faculty and our leadership, our board, takes utterly seriously the training of the whole person not just their heads. I wonder how many of you have, uh, have uh, known a minister who you thought was very, very smart. But somewhere along the line, something seemed to be missing, and there was a bit of a gap in the heart, and, and somehow all that he or she believed didn't really seem to take the longest journey that a human being can ever take, and that is from our head to our heart. I've known a few... Our goal is to have that a few become none, perhaps, over many years, at least as far as we are concerned. We take the whole person. We train the head, the heart, the hand. We believe that a thorough theological education does have to involve the intellectual workings of the human being, but it also must come to the place where our hearts are affected, where Jesus is known and loved, where the truth and wonder of who he is is not simply an idea about him, it is him. And to understand what it means to walk with, in, and through Christ into the world and into the lives in which all of us have to live. We need Christian leaders who care deeply about training their own hearts for the gospel, and then training the hearts of the people they serve. The Apostle Paul said that it was his singular ambition to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. This means that the Christian believer is to walk so closely to Jesus, so with Jesus, that there is something about their lives that is, well, just completely different. Redeemer is committed to giving uh, the world and the church um, those kinds of people. We have people from all kinds of backgrounds, not just Presbyterian, believe me. We have folks, PCPC is, uh, in a sense, our home church as a seminary, but we go way, way beyond PCPC. We have folks from um, Highland Park Presbyterian. We have folks from the Village Church. We have folks from Baptist and interfaith backgrounds, from community churches, from uh, Episcopal and Anglican backgrounds, because we believe that at the center of the truth, the gospel, where Jesus is the head of his church, 
that there we can come together around Orthodox uh, education. You got a card when you came in? If you fill out this card and check some of the things that are there of your, concerning your interest in the seminary, and you pass it to one of the ushers who are our students uh, that are at the doors tonight, if you pass it in tonight, you'll get a free book tonight. If you would rather take it home and uh, mail it in later, um, that would be just fine. I've known Tim Keller for over 35 years. He is um, one of the people that I would call uh, if I needed somebody to come into my lifeboat and be of real help to me. And in fact, I have needed that in recent years, and Tim has been that kind of friend. Since 1989, he and his wife Kathy and their three sons have lived in New York City, where he pastors Redeemer Presbyterian Church, as I think most of us know. I tried to find out how many CDs uh, went out from Redeemer uh, every week. And the answer is, nobody knows, because it's not just CDs, it's all the downloads that take place too. But uh, I, um, I'm no longer surprised when people come up to me and say, you know, Skip, I was listening to a sermon the other day by, and I know the name, before they ever speak it. Because uh, really, nine times out of ten, it's going to be Tim's name. God is using Tim, he's using Redeemer, and he's using the ministries that have been put together there in a very, very special way to reach um, particularly the urban centers of the world uh, with the gospel. Tim is the author of four books that have been published in just the last couple of years. The first one was Reason for God, and it was on the New York Times bestseller list for um, uh, seven or eight weeks. His uh, latest book is out now called uh, Generous Justice, and there's another one coming out in just uh, a few weeks. His wife is uh, Kathy. Uh, She is um, a strong lady, I must say. She's maybe one of the only people in the world who keeps Tim in line. I've often said before in various contexts that the best thing we can do is introduce our friends to our friends. So it's my privilege to introduce Tim Keller to you. I want to know, who are you? <laughs> You're not singing. You, you, they, you can't sit there unless you sing something. So go ahead. Who would like to be first? <laughs> Sitting in here saying, boy, that's, who are those people? This is, you're the overflow. Okay, that's good. Uh, so is this, or are you being punished? It's like being sat in the corner. Um, l- listen, uh, this is, before I get into the exposition, it, um, I'm, I'm here and uh, at Redeemer Seminary is sponsoring this evening. Redeemer Seminary uh, uh, seeks to produce people who can bring the gospel to bear on people's lives. And uh, I feel a little funny about being this sort of star of the night, uh, but uh, I think it would, therefore, I think I need to, I need to say something, I'll tell you a story about um, uh, Stokowski, who was a, uh, a great conductor, and uh, this is true, he was the conductor of the, um, no, no, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, because I just thought of this story one second ago. It was, um, who was the conductor of the NBC Philharmonic? No, the NBC, it was the NBC... Pardon me? Paganini? Who? Toscanini? Arturo Toscanini. That's it. Okay, this is true, because I looked this up six months ago. Arturo Toscanini was the director of the, the NBC Philharmonic. He was conducting them at one point, and he was doing a Beethoven. They were doing a Beethoven symphony. Uh, He did do a particularly good job at conducting it. And when the, um, uh, and this was in a rehearsal, but he did a terrific job with it. When uh, when, when the piece was over, it was so good that the entire uh, orchestra, and these were top musicians, 
had never played that well. They'd never played that well. And they got up off their feet, and they started to applaud him, and he was a little guy, evidently. And, and they noticed after about one second that he was uh, very red-faced, very upset, weeping, and he made them st- sit down, sit down, and he made them stop. He hated the applause. He got them to all sit down, and they all sat down. And then, you know, with his, his, uh, uh, you know, his voice breaking, he said, you don't understand, you don't understand. It wasn't me, it was Beethoven. And he just couldn't see them applauding him. All he'd done was apply Beethoven. And that's what had just changed them and, and had lifted them up and swept them up. And he says, I just was applying Beethoven. You should not be applauding me. It was not me, he said, it's Beethoven. And honestly, uh, the... Uh, what I'm about to do is, is something that can be done. It's really not something that just some special, you know, starring role ministers do. This is something that you can learn to do. This is something that you should, you should support um, those ways of preparing people to basically do what I'm going to do. I'm just going to take a very simple issue, which is anxiety and worry, which is something we all struggle with quite a lot. And I just want to show what a very, very famous text uh, says about it. But in particular, I want to show how the gospel, uh, uh, I, just, I just want to bring the gospel to bear on it. And what I do can be done. It's not just something that I can do or a few really good preachers can do. This is something that can be done. And it's not me, it's Beethoven. Got it? If you like it, it's not me, it's Beethoven. Now, if you don't, it's me. Uh, this is Philippians chapter 4, very famous. Let's just read from verses 4 to 12. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say, I will say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is God's word. Um, first of all, let's talk about what peace is. He's talking about peace here. Uh, the, the opposite of joy is sadness, uh, but the opposite of peace is anxiety. And that's what Paul's dealing with in this spot. Anxiety, uh, uh, worry. And uh, the word that's used here when it says, don't be anxious, when it talks about that, do not be anxious, see verse 5, don't be anxious about anything, verse 6, excuse me. Uh, the, the, the Greek word that's used there, got you know, I couldn't be a Bible preacher without referring to the Greek word, uh, is not a word for ordinary concern. If you love anything you're going to be concerned. You're going to worry. You're going to care about it. It's, 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 there's going to be some pain. Uh, you can't, if you love anything, your heart is uh, constantly uh, concerned. It, there's, there is, a, there is a, a worry that is just part of being a, a whole person, being a loving person. But that's not this word. This word actually means to be torn to pieces. This word means to be broken into pieces, really be experience debilitating kind of fear. And, uh, and yet Paul says that he has learned the secret of facing the biggest problems and being content and 
and having this peace in the, in the uh, face of fear. Now, what is this thing that he says is possible? Before we decide, figure out how you get it, first of all, let's make sure we understand what it means. First of all, he says it means to be content. And I think that means a kind of inner equilibrium. It means something on the inside. Uh, when something comes upon us, we're able to stay calm. I mean, at the very least, it does mean to be calm. And don't forget Paul's situation. When Paul says, I have learned to be content, I've learned to be calm. Um, now, you and I you know, need therapy to deal with our bills and with our boss. And Paul was dealing with you know, torture and, de- and, and imprisonment and, and the possibility of execution. And Paul's saying, I can look at all that and be absolutely calm. Don't you want to know what, what the secret is then? So first of all, part of this peace that Paul's talking about that passes all understanding is, a, is an inner tranquility. But there's more to it than that. Because he goes beyond that and starts talking about uh, the peace that passes all understanding. In fact, when it says, may the peace that passes all understanding guard your hearts and minds. Uh, Again, some you may have heard this discussed before. It's a very famous passage. And that's a word that literally means to have soldiers uh, marching around a particular battlement in order to protect it from uh, being raided or invaded. And so this is going beyond inner tranquility. See, inner tranquility can be the absence of negative thoughts. And if, I, I guess it is. And actually, most of the books you read on how to control your, uh, uh, you know, your worry and your fears. We'll talk about controlling negative thoughts, controlling negative thoughts. But what Paul's talking about here is not the absence of certain thoughts. It's the presence of God. It's a sense... Uh, most pastors do know, because we always are spending time over the years with people who are uh, facing incredible tragedies and sudden death and terrible danger and terrible things, Spent an awful lot of time in the funeral home, an awful lot of time in the hospitals, an awful lot of time in the jails, an awful lot of time with people who are facing terrible things. And over the years, we have seen, I certainly have seen, some situations in which believing people, Christian people, are facing some terrible things, and they are experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. And that's the presence of something. That's not just the absence of negative thoughts. It's the presence of a power it is the presence of God. It is beyond, it's inexplicable. Even the people really don't know how they get it. It's not a matter of controlling your thoughts and deep breathing or all the stuff that the books on how to deal with anxiety tell you about. Uh, and it is, uh, it, is, it is really supernatural. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. Paul says he has it. He has this inner tranquility, this peace that passes all understanding. But notice he doesn't say, that's just the kind of guy I am. I'm a tough guy. I'm a courageous guy. Things come at me. When I read this passage, in fact, when I read the story of Paul, you know what it reminds me of? Uh, I, went to, I went to seminary in New England. And one of the things I love about the New England coast is how rocky it is. And in bad weather, uh, I, I love to be in a position where you can look out the window and see the waves come after the rocks. I remember one time watching a rock, big kind of rock sticking out of the, uh, sort of, you know, out of the water, and these huge waves came in, enormous waves. And they would, they would always, they'd pound the rock, and then they would, they would, of course, the rock would disappear when this huge wave would come in, and you were sure it's going to be gone. But when the wave recedes, there's no way that that rock could still be there, and it was always there. And that's Paul. You know what he's dealing with. He's not dealing with what we deal with, our bills and our bosses and things like that. He was dealing with shipwreck. He was dealing with torture. He was dealing with 39 lashes. He was dealing with uh, people trying to hunt him down, people taking vows to not eat or drink until they had him dead. He was facing imprisonment and execution and death and exile. Wave after wave after wave. It just didn't move him. The waves crashed, and there he was. Does he say, and that's because I'm that kind of guy? No. He says, I have learned. See that? Boy, that gives us hope. That gives me hope. Doesn't it give you hope? He does not say, I'm that kind of guy. I mean, there are 
I think, out there. Occasionally I've met people who are that kind of guy. People who are just impervious. It doesn't matter. Nothing gets to them. It doesn't seem to. Maybe underneath, but I can't. I mean, there are tough people. That's not what Paul says. He doesn't say, that's the way I am. That's not a natural thing. He says, I've learned it. I've learned the secret. So, it's something to be learned. All right, how do we learn it? So, now having looked at the character of this Christian peace, I'd like to talk about three strategies that I see in the text. Hinted, you know, directly or indirectly, three strategies. Uh, and these are things you can learn. And because you can learn them, you can have this, whoever you are. And those three strategies I'll call thanking, thinking, and loving. And if you learn how to use these strategies, you can, you can get more and more. I don't think it happens overnight. You can get more and more of this peace that will enable you to face anything. So first of all, thanking. Now, this is a pretty famous uh, part of the passage. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything, but, so there's the contrast. Do not be anxious about anything, but do what? In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now notice, it actually doesn't say, make your requests be known to God. And then when, uh, you know, when your orders come in, thank him. Okay? It doesn't say that. It says, make your order with thanksgiving. It means, make your, make your request with thanksgiving. Not request and thanksgiving. No, no, request goes with the thanksgiving. You're supposed to be already thanking him. Why, you say? Why should I be thanking I've asked him for something, and why should I be thanking him before it comes? Well, it's one of the secrets. I, uh, when I was, I guess in the summer of 1973, um, girl I really, really liked, and the girl I was trying to keep her liking me, um, she was really, obviously, she was trying to break up with me. She was doing a horrible job of it, because she was just constantly saying, I want to break up. I want you to do it or don't do it, but maybe you really like me, and maybe you want me to come more after you. <laughs> so eventually, what I did was, she really was trying to break up with me. She just was kind of cowardly about it. And I, uh, I, I you know, what I did was, I found out where she was working. She was working at a, uh, uh, she was working at a resort in the Pocono Mountains for the summer, and uh, so I went there to work as a short order cook at, on the golf, uh, at the golf shop on the dog leg of the, you know, the ninth hole, and I stayed there to sort of dog her all summer to make sure that she would kind of get back with me, and I prayed every day and probably every night, oh Lord, you know, don't let her break up, you know, open her heart, soften her heart. I prayed over and over and over and over again that I would marry her. This was not, by the way, the woman I married. <laughs> it was somebody else. There's somebody else. And what was I praying for? I was praying, well, what was I? Was I praying for her? Well, I was, but I was, well, maybe. Here's the point. If God had actually given me what I was praying for, it would have been the worst thing. The, the person who has, has already been part of my introduction, who's been, uh, is just joined at the hip with me and everything and has meant everything in the world to me, uh, wasn't the person I was praying God to get. I was praying God to get somebody else. So did God answer my prayer or not? Well, put it like this. God gave me what I would have asked for if I knew everything he knew. And therefore, even though I didn't do it then, I actually didn't make my prayer with thanksgiving. I didn't do that. I said, Lord, you've got to get this for me or my life is over. Period. I didn't say, Lord, I would like this relationship to be salvaged. And yet I thank you for whatever you're going to do because I know that uh, I'm asking for something. But if you don't give it to me in silver, which is what I'm asking for, you'll give me the same value in gold. You'll just give it to me in a different currency. You'll give it to me in a different form. I know you will. I didn't do that. And by the way, if I had been able to pray like that, I would have had a whole lot easier summer. <laughs> I not only would have had a diminishment of my anxiety, I would have been able to handle what actually did happen, and she finally did, you know, break it up. 
uh, it would have been completely different. I didn't know how to do that. But this is one of the disciplines. One of the disciplines is this. You know, God did not create a world with violence and death and, and conflict and strife. He didn't create a world like that. Go look. Genesis 1, 2, you see what kind of world he, he put here. He didn't put all this bad stuff in it. That wasn't his original design. But now that it's here, all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I'll tell you something. When Jesus' friends and followers were up there looking at Jesus dying on the cross, he was dying on the cross. And I wonder how many people lost their faith that night. Going home, well, actually, in a sense, a lot of them actually did lose their faith. Jesus brought them back. But the point is, I could imagine people going home that night, having lost their faith. You know what they were saying? I don't see how God could bring anything good out of this. This man was healing the sick. He was raising the dead. He was giving us hope. (laughs) This was the hope of Israel. I mean, that's what the the guys were saying on the road to Emmaus. They were looking at what Jesus Christ dying on the cross and saying God couldn't possibly bring anything good out of this. And yet they were looking at that minute at the, at the greatest thing God has ever done, ever will do. The greatest act of God's love, the greatest act of God's judgment, the greatest act of God's consummate wisdom. And they looked at it, but because they couldn't fit it in their, their little thimble brain, you know, they were looking at an ocean of love and an ocean of, of wisdom, but they could, couldn't get it in their brain. They couldn't figure out how that guy could bring anything good out of that. And they went home and they lost their faith when they were really looking at the greatest object of faith there was. God will give you, you know, you dedicate your life to him. You give yourself to him and you stick with him. Make your request known with thanksgiving. And he will give you what he, you would have asked for if you knew everything he knew. And you can know that. And that is a, that's enormous ability to, to start to get peace. And I just read this in the New York Times uh, uh, not too long ago, it was about a, a Columbia University psychologist uh, named Sheena Iyengar, and she had recently, she recently wrote a book called um, uh, The Art of Choosing, and she did research on, on, on people. And one of the things, and this is right out of the, I'll just read it, this is right out of the, uh, the review, this is a review of the book, and it said, uh, she suspected that religiously observant people who obey lots of behavioral restrictions. You know, if you become a Christian, there's a lot of things you say no to because you're going to follow Christ and you're not going to do this or this. So she said, obviously, religious people have fewer choices that they can make. Secular people can choose whatever they think is right as long as it's legal or they feel like it fits in with their, you know, their desires. But he says, she suspected religiously observant people who obey lots of behavioral restrictions would feel unable to control their own lives and therefore would be more pessimistic. To test this hypothesis, she interviewed more than 600 people, ranging from fundamentalists to liberals, asking asking questions to test optimism, and she had them fill out a mental health questionnaire. What she found surprised her. The members of conservative and orthodox faiths, quote, experienced greater hope, were more optimistic when faced with adversity, and were less likely to be depressed than their counterparts. She writes, indeed, people most susceptible to pessimism and depression were the least religious. The presence, and here's what she said, the presence of so many rules didn't debilitate people. Instead, it seemed to empower them. Why? Many of their choices were taken away, yes, and they experienced a sin of, and and they did not experience a lot of control over their lives. But in retrospect, she, she decided the result was obvious. Even atheists might agree that believing that God cares about you or that your life is part of a cosmic plan could be a powerful source of hope. Yeah. (laughs) Why would these people who have have narrowed their choices in life, you see, her idea was the meaning of life is to have all your options open. And she found that people had all their options open and therefore did not consider themselves part of God's cosmic plan, found that when adversity hit, they were more discouraged. They were more debilitated. They were more paralyzed by fear, or they were more deeply depressed. And what she found out clinically was when you feel like, I'm actually part of God's plan, it can be a powerful source of hope. Yeah. Make your request known with thanksgiving. And that's the first of the three disciplines. Thanking. Secondly, thinking. Thinking? Yeah. 
Verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, let me just take the first part. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, think about what the biblical faith says is the truth. Think about the truth. Think about honor. Think about justice. Here, I believe, Paul is saying, and this at first doesn't make sense, is when you're discouraged, when you're afraid, think about the basic truths of the Christian faith. Now, when you read books, secular books, on how to deal with anxiety, how to deal with fear, how to deal with, you know, uh, debilitating fear, I can tell you one thing they do not do. Never. They always go to techniques. They say, control your negative thoughts. They say, uh, you know, make changes in your life. They say, uh, uh, you know, maybe pamper yourself a little bit. You know, maybe you're being too hard on yourself. They do a whole lot of things. They get down to techniques. But they don't do this. They never say, oh, you're experiencing fear? You're experiencing, you know, anxiety? Think about the big questions. Who are you? <laughs> what are human beings? What is the meaning of life? Where did we come from? And where are we going? Let's think about the big questions right now. And most people would say, no, that's not how I'm going to deal with my fear. That's not how I'm going to deal with my anxiety. And yet that's what Paul's talking about. And you say, why? All right, listen, can I read you? I know for about the next 90 seconds you're going to say, where the heck is he going with this? This is Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., who was a great intellectual, and he was Supreme Court. He was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court for many years. He was a major public intellectual. Uh, he had quite a, uh, uh, an impact on our culture in many ways. Now, here's something from his, uh, one of his, this is actually from his letters. It was taken from a book of his letters that he wrote a friend. He said, there is no reason for attributing to a man significance different in kind from that which it belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. Human beings are no more significant than baboons or a grain of sand. The world has produced me and the rattlesnake, but I will kill if I get the chance. Uh, I will kill the rattlesnake, and the only reason is because it is in Congress of the world I want and the world we are trying to make according to our own power. Uh, a man who has no assured belief in the existence of a personal God or of a future existence with retribution or reward can have for his rule of life, as far as I can see, only to follow those impulses and instincts which are the strongest or which seem to him the best ones. Now, what Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. was saying is, I don't think there's a God. Because I don't think there's a God, I believe we're here by accident. And if we're here by accident, then maybe uh, you might feel that as a human being you're significant, but you're not. You're here by accident. You've just evolved. Uh, you, uh, you're more complex than some other organisms, but that's just about it. Uh, in the end, we're all going to die, and after that, the sun is going to die, and there won't be anybody around to remember anything that anybody's done. So if you decide to be a good person... Or if you decide to be a serial killer, in the end, it will make absolutely no difference. There'll be nobody around to even remember anything that anybody's ever done. And therefore, in the end, there is absolutely no way to decide right or wrong. There's no, there's no way to decide your meaning in life. There's no way to decide. You can never say to somebody, you ought to do this or ought to do that. You can try to have fun, you can, uh, uh, but the only thing you have to go on is kind of your impulses. And ultimately, there's no significance to anything you do. In fact, you're not significant either. Now, I sometimes read these uh, passages like this to New Yorkers that I'm talking to about Christianity. The average Manhattanite is a pretty secular person who says, well, maybe there's a God, maybe not, but I don't think so, and I believe there's a natural explanation for everything, and I believe basically, uh, yeah, we're here by accident, and, and there's really no purpose a creator that you know, gave me a purpose and all that. So I read in passages like that. I said, you know, if there is no God, there's no right or wrong. Right or wrong is all a matter of opinion. It means there's no meaning to anything you do. Nothing you do will make any difference in the end. Uh, there's absolutely no reason for you to follow any uh, 
a moral guide other than your own impulses. And uh, everything is meaning. Every, everything is meaningless. Everything is insignificant. Everything is absurd. And they say, well, he's being kind of negative about it. <laughs> he's, you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes, he's kind of looking on the dark side of things. I don't like to think out the implications like that. I see what he's saying. Of course, I don't really know how. Yes, but I don't like to think like that. Okay, fine. You're getting peace, but I want you to see how you're getting your peace by not thinking. By not thinking out the implications of what you believe about life, about human nature, about the meaning of things. It's a, it's a piece, yes, but it's a stupid piece. You know, there's a piece that goes like this, ho, 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 to the bottle I go, to heal my heart and drown my woe. And rain may fall and wind may blow and many miles be more to go, but under a big tree I will lie and watch the clouds go sailing by. There, It's one of the ways... You know, get a bottle, and, uh, and it's one of the ways to have peace. It's a stupid peace. But see, Christianity is a smart peace. Christianity says, think. Think about the most basic truths of the Bible. There is a God, and he made you in love for himself. And the world is turned away from him, but at infinite cost to himself, he's come back into the world in Jesus Christ, and he's begun the uh, redemption of the world, and someday he's going to put absolutely everything right. And everything's going to be okay again. And that means you are valuable. And that means in the end, everything's going to be all right. That's incredible. Think, think, think. Of course you're having this problem. Of course you're having that problem. But think about the big questions. Don't you see? The more a Christian thinks, the better you feel. The more a Christian thinks about the big questions, the most basic issues that you believe, the better you're going to feel. And may I go so far with all due respect, because I don't know who all who is here tonight, if you say, I don't know if there's a God, I'm not really sure, I think maybe we're just here by accident, the more you think of the implications of your beliefs, the worse you're going to feel. You, if you want to have peace, fine, but you're going to get peace by not thinking. Christians get peace from thinking. Thinking and thinking and thinking out the implications of what they believe. And the more you, the more you thank and the more you think, the more peace you'll have. And then there's a third there's thanking, there's thinking, and there's loving. Because it doesn't just say, think on whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. It also talks about whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise. Here he's talking about something else, and here's the reason why this is so important. Um, and, and notice, by the way, the peace of God keeps not just your minds, but your hearts in Christ Jesus. St. Augustine, brilliant, brilliant man, looked at, the, the, looked at the, uh, the, the, Greek, the various Greek philosophies. And he really wrestled with uh, probably what looked like the best, the best antidote to anxiety that the Greek, uh, the Greek thought could ever come up with, and that was basically Stoicism. And the Stoics believed in what's called ataraxia, and here's what basically they said. They said, you know the reason why so many people are filled with anxiety, filled with unhappiness, filled with grief, filled with discouragement and depression, is because they set their hearts too much on things. Of course, if you put your heart on your career, and something goes wrong with your career, you'll be devastated. Or if you put your heart on your children, and something goes wrong with one of your children, you'll be devastated. And when there's something may go wrong with your children, you'll be eaten up with fear and anxiety. And they're not stupid about this. They say, you know, therefore, you, you can always see where your anxiety is coming from, and that is you've given your heart to this. So don't give your heart to anything. It reminds me of that famous place where, where uh, C.S. Lewis says, if you don't want your heart to be broken, don't give it to anything. Because anything you love will break your heart at some point. So the Greeks were sat around and they said, um, oh, well, that's it. That's the key. You want to live a, uh, a, a life of poise? You want to deal with anxiety? Don't love anything too much. Hold on to your heart. You know, prefer things. Actually, they believe it or not, they did say that. It's all right to have preferences. You can prefer your children over other people's children. <laughs> so, 
say, you're my children, and over there is the neighbor's children, and I prefer you. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. You can have preferences, but not really loves. You can't give your heart away. Don't do that. You do that, you will live, no, you will live a life of grief. You will live a life of anxiety. You will live a, a, your life will be ruined. And a lot of you are saying, yeah, that's right. Yeah. However, Augustine said, there's a problem when you don't give your heart to anything. And it comes out in that famous quote by C.S. Lewis, which I don't know exactly word for word, but I know well enough to give you the gist of it. And uh, the place where Lewis says, uh, you know, if you don't want your heart to be broken, give it to nothing. He says, lock it away in a casket of selfishness. If, uh, surround it with little luxuries. Don't give it to anything. But, he says, there is a problem. In that casket, dark, airless, and motionless, it will not be broken, but it will change. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. And so St. Augustine said, we got a problem. Because on the one hand, if you give your heart to anything, it's going to destroy you in the end. Because unless, you know, if uh, you give your heart to this or that or this and things go wrong, it's just going to kill you. But if you don't give your heart to anything, then it's going to kill you too. I mean, it'll dehumanize you. It'll harden you. You won't be, you won't be a human being. What's the answer? And St. Augustine said, only the love of the immutable can give tranquility. Interesting. You hear what he's saying? If you love something which is mutable, something which is changeable, something which is, is subject to decay, something, something that can fall apart, if that's the most important thing that you love, then you will always, you will always lack... In other words, if you, if you love mutable things, you will always lack tranquility. If you love nothing you will just be hard. Instead, he said, only the love of the immutable can give you tranquility. It's okay to love your children. It's okay to love your career. It's okay to love those things. Very important. So don't go to preferences. Don't do that. But what you've got to do is love God more. And if the thing you love supremely is God, and if your heart is given to God supremely, you realize what that means. See, even if you're facing death. The only thing, if God is the supreme love of your heart, then even death only makes things better. I mean, when God is the thing you love the most, you are invulnerable. You are Superman. You are Superwoman. You're Superboy and Supergirl. Nothing can touch the, the most important thing that you love. And all other loves, you see, are anchored by this one. So that if you find, it's very, very simple. If I love, well, this is what happened. When I loved this girl who broke up with me more than God, I really did. I loved her more than God. No doubt about it. I believed in God. I kind of liked God. At the time, if you said, do you love God? I would say, oh, yeah. But I look back, it was like. <laughs> I loved her. Why? I spent time thinking about her, which is a form of meditation and contemplation. I didn't spend time meditating and contemplating on God and finding my heart really involved with God. Not at all. You know, I loved God in principle, which meant I liked him in practice. And I loved her, and I thought about her. And then, of course, when, she, when, when the relationship fell apart, I fell apart. Why? Because that was my God. I mean, that was, the, that, was, that was the thing that my heart was most involved in. But if I had loved God more than her and I broke up, I would have been very sad. I would have been very grieved. It would have taken me a year to get over it, but I wouldn't have fallen apart the same way. And you won't either. Because if you want the peace that passes all understanding, the three disciplines are thinking, pardon me, thanking, thinking, and loving. Think about what is lovely. Think about what is worthy of praise, which, of course, is God himself. And there you have it. So, where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us with one very important point to make. You can't just tell yourself, love God more. It doesn't really work very well. In fact, I, I mean, you know, um, you've got to find God lovely. They, uh, I remember some years ago talking to a guy who said, um, when he first met his wife, he, if somebody had told him, you're going to be madly in love with her someday, he said crazy, because she wasn't, 
physically all that attractive of a person, he told me. When I first met her the first couple of times, if somebody had said, someday you're going to be utterly head over heels in love with her. Uh, and, or if somebody had said, be in love with her, he would have not known how to do it. He said, I had to get to know her. And he says, you know, I, as I got to know her and as I saw her character and as I saw who she was and as I saw what she did and as I saw what she'd been through and as I saw what she'd done for other people and as I saw, you know, who she really was, she became so gorgeous to me, I can't imagine not finding her gorgeous. It doesn't matter how old she gets. It doesn't matter how heavy she gets. It doesn't matter if she loses all her hair. She says she'll always be gorgeous. She is gorgeous to me. He didn't just love her. He found her lovely, and now he's deeply in love. And that's what you're going to have to do if you're going to get this. If you're going to get this, this, this peace that passes all understanding, it's not enough just to tell yourself, I've got to love God. You've got to find him lovely. You've got to have your heart attracted. You've, you've, you've got to be drawn in. You can't just make yourself fall in love. So how can you get your heart where it ought to be? Here's how you do it. Of course, it's Jesus. That's the thing that we've got. No other religion's got this. Every other religion has a God who is, you know, he speaks. It might be in his scripture. But we have a Jesus who, be, we have a God who became human. And as he became human, he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross... He cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was flogged, he was beaten. What was he doing? What was happening? You know, in, in the book of Isaiah, there's a famous passage that says, the wicked are like the, lo- the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. That's from the book of Isaiah. He says, the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest. They have no rest. They have constant fear. They have no peace, no peace at all. When you look at Jesus Christ, especially in that last couple of days, especially in those last hours, you see him in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood. You see him crying out to God, let this cup pass from me if it's at all possible. You see him, you see him being beaten. You see him being uh, pierced with thorns. You see him on the cross literally screaming, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why? What? Why? He was losing all his peace. He had perfect peace. He had infinite peace. He loved the Father with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. He lost all of his peace so that we could have perfect peace, so that our sins could be forgiven, so God could embrace us. You have to look at Jesus Christ losing all of his peace so you could have his peace, and you have to look at that until, and it will, it will. Ask God's Spirit to do it until you love him supremely. And then you'll have this You'll have the ability to face anything. But I want you to think about this as an example. It's in the hymn books, by the way. There's a man named Horatio Spafford, who in, uh, he was a Chicago businessman who lost all of his money in uh, the uh, Chicago fire, 1871. Lost all of his money. Um, and just two years later, that was, one, that was bad, but not yet. <laughs> two years later, he put his wife and his four daughters on a ship to go to Britain it was a you know a transatlantic voyage. He was going to follow later on, but during the, uh, the the passage, the ship collided with another ship and sank. As it was sinking, his wife Anna knelt with the four daughters and prayed. And as the ship went down, they all went into the icy water, the North Atlantic. And uh, an hour or two later, Anna was picked up floating on some debris, unconscious, but all the little girls were not found. They took her to Britain, and she uh, telegraphed back to, uh, cabled back to uh, her husband, two words, saved alone. So he got on a ship to go back, go to Britain and bring his wife back. And on the way, he would have wrestled. He would have wrestled. He would have wrestled. And he wrestled through by writing a poem, which became a very, very famous hymn. The first line goes like this. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it's okay. It is well with my soul. How could he say that? 
How could he even evoke the waves? The sorrow was like sea billows. Well, let's keep going. Verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. What's he doing? Why is he going there? He's wrestling with God, suffering. What in the world is he doing rehearsing the gospel? And then he goes, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious, that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. What's he doing? He's doing. He's thinking. He's thanking. He's loving. He's doing what he's supposed to do. He's not just saying, God, how could you have done this? God, how could you have done this? He's not trying to banish negative thoughts. How could you possibly banish negative thoughts at a time like that? He was not banishing negative thoughts. He was getting something that enabled him to triumph over all that. And what was he getting? He was getting the peace that passes understanding. You can see it in the music. You can see it in the hymn. But how did he get there? By looking at Jesus. By looking at Jesus and looking at him dying on the cross until he was able to face it. That proves that this works. It proves it. He didn't just say, oh, how are you going to get through? How am I going to get through this? He looked at Jesus. He looked at him dying on the cross. It's amazing that in the middle of a, of a, of a, of a poem about how do I deal with the loss of four of my little girls, he looked at Jesus until he was able to get what? To say, it is well with my soul. You know, at the very end, near the end of the... At near the end of the Lord of the Rings, in the third book, there's a place where, you know, Sam Gamgee wakes up after having been, you know, unconscious and sees Gandalf there, and he thought he was dead. And there's this great place where uh, Sam looks at him and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Is everything sad going to come untrue? And, of course, the answer, well, within the horizon of the narrative is, no, not quite. But if you, see, think. If Jesus is going to do everything he says he's going to do, and he is, then everything sad is going to come untrue. Think about that until you get the peace that passes all understanding. Let's pray for a second. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to see uh, the power of the gospel for the most practical situations that we face. I know there's people in any moment that we get a group of people this size in this room, I know there's people that are, that are facing fears, they're facing paralyzing fears, they're being ripped up with anxiety and worry about things. The gospel gives us the antidote, not an easy medicine to take, but it will give us the peace that passes understanding. Teach us how to think, how to thank, how to love our way, into that peace. Father, if it worked for some, Father, if it worked for Horatio Spafford, it can work for us. It will work for us. And we pray that you would help us to uh, understand the gospel in that way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.